Hey, Yogi, Sarah Burchard here, and you are listening to Yoga Unplugged Conversations, a show dedicated to helping you grow, thrive, and gracefully make tough life decisions so you can lead a happier, healthier life. On this show, we discuss common challenges that everyone can relate to and apply philosophy and practical tools that have been proven to be effective solutions. Today, we're talking about depression. For those who have been diagnosed as clinically depressed, this word could appear pretty straightforward. But what about those of us who are not diagnosed and wonder if we are? Maybe you struggle to find joy and purpose in your life. Maybe you've had a traumatic event that has left you in serious despair. Maybe you have felt sad for so long you start questioning if you will ever be okay again. My guest today is going to explain to us what the difference between sadness and depression is and what to do if you think you might be experiencing depression. Dr. Susie Kiss is a clinical psychologist who has been practicing for over 20 years. Her areas of specialization include depression, anxiety, relationships, and I love this, as she often says, high-functioning neurotics like herself. <laughs> she has been a trusted source and a guiding light in the Yoga Unplugged community for years. Her way of being is so nurturing that you feel safe confiding in her with just about anything. For me, there isn't a better person to discuss this sensitive topic with than her. Susie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sarah. Wow, I hope I can live up to your introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I know podcasts are not something you typically do, so I really appreciate you doing something out of your norm for us. Of course. I'm, I'm happy to be here, Sarah. If it's okay with you, I would love for you to share a bit about your background. Some people might not know this, but you didn't start out as a psychologist. Can you explain to our listeners what led you to this profession and why you chose to focus on symptoms such as depression and anxiety? Most definitely. So I did like talking to people and helping them figure out different relationship issues or speed bumps in the road of life, as I call it. And actually, in the seventh grade, my friends would call me Dear Abby. So uh, sort of gives away my age. <laughs> <laughs> For you younger folks, um, Dear Abby wrote a newspaper column and um, gave advice. And so my friends would refer to me as Dear Abby. And that sort of stuck with me. However, my route to become a psychologist was a little convoluted. I did work in human services. My role was a social worker. And then when my girlfriend asked me if I wanted to get my real estate license, I'm like, sure. So I did that for a while mm -hmm. <laughs> until economic bubble popped. And then I had to regroup and think about what I wanted to do when I grew up, although I was already an adult. And it called me back to human services where I was working with um, children and families at risk. And as I was moving up the corporate ladder, I found myself doing more administrative duties and RFPs, requests for proposals, and I really wanted to work with people. So that um, was a springboard for me to go back to school to pursue my doctorate as, a, as an adult and a non-traditional student. So it was a big leap of faith, but one I'm so happy that I made. Yeah. Do you think that if you wouldn't have gone back to school that you would have ever been able to be fully fulfilled in what you were doing before? That's a really good question, Sarah, because, you know, my, my goal um, and when I work with clients is to help them elevate to the best version of themselves. And I think, you know, we're all searching for something that we have a passion about, that we're focused and intentional. And if we happen to get a paycheck for it, we feel like we've never worked a day in our life. Mm -hmm. And I feel that the last step in my educational goals allowed me to pursue that. And here I am doing something I'm passionate about. And I don't feel like it's work or a job. And I am so grateful that I'm able to utilize my gifts. and. Um, help other people. Yeah, it's great. We should all be so lucky. Yes, so, and that's what I try to help people do so then they can avoid sadness and depression. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about that. I'd like to start by having you define for our audience what depression is and what it is not. Okay, 
So I think one place to start is to differentiate between emotions, feelings, and moods. And the primary factor that differentiates them is time. So emotions, the researchers have assessed, last about six seconds. They're very fleeting, and we can move in and out of them very quickly. Feelings, there's what's called a cognitive saturation. So we're more aware of what's happening and assessing it in our body and how it's affecting us. And then we would go into a mood which is longer lasting. It's usually not tied to a specific event, but a lot of different variables that are affecting us. It's influenced by the environment, our mental state, and so also, Sarah, in differentiating like sadness and depression, where depression, as I'm going to be speaking about it, would be a clinical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. We often um, throw that word around, you know, mm -hmm. I, I broke my fingernail, I'm so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, I, I didn't get that promotion. I'm so bummed out, you know, mm -hmm. and so that would be more of an emotion or feeling. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about clinical depression, there is specific criteria that needs to be met in order to have the diagnosis of depression. So I can certainly go through that. Do you think that would be yeah. helpful? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so reading from the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is basically the mental health provider's diagnostic Bible, has all of the diagnoses that could affect us mentally, psychologically, emotionally. So for major depressive disorder, you have to have five or more of the following symptoms that have been present during the same two-week period and represent a change from previous functioning. At least one of the symptoms is either one, depressed mood, or two, loss of interest or pleasure. Note, do not include symptoms that are clearly attributable to another medical condition. And we can talk more about that okay. after this. So number one, you have a depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated by either subjective report, so that's how you're feeling inside yourself, such as sad, empty, hopeless, or observation made by others. For example, I see somebody being tearful or weepy or moving slowly. In children and adolescents, that can manifest as an irritable mood. Hmm. Number two is markedly dimish, diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated by either subjective account or observation. Number three is significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain. For example, a change of more than 5% of body weight in a month or a decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. In children, consider failure to make making expected weight gains. Number four is insomnia, so that means difficulty sleeping, or hypersomnia, which is sleeping too much nearly every day. Number five is psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day, observable by others, not merely subjective feelings or rest restlessness or being slowed down. So there's, um, I describe it as feeling like you're under a wet, heavy blanket, hmm. right? So just really hard, sludging like mud to get through life. Number six is fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Seven, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt, which may be delusional nearly every day. And it's not merely self-reproach or guilt about being sick. It's much deeper and heavier than that. Hmm. Number eight is a diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day, either by subjective account or as observed by others. Number nine is recurrent thoughts of death, not just fear of dying, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt 
by a specific plan for committing suicide. So there, there were nine criteria to meet the diagnosis. You have to have five or more on that list. Okay, and, and they all have to all be experienced within two weeks. Yes, and so after we identify if they have five of, or more of the nine, then there's additional criteria that the symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Additionally- uh, Hold on one sec before you go further okay. with that. Uh -huh. So if, if somebody was feeling these symptoms in a two week span, but then like a week later, they didn't feel five out of nine of those for a couple months, were they actually depressed or can, can it just be short term? Is it something that always lasts with you for your whole life? So that was a really awesome question, Sarah. Okay, so um, the first one where you ask if it lasts two weeks and then it remits, that means it, it gets better or lifts, mm -hmm. that would be considered a depressive episode. Mm -hmm. So if we have those symptoms and meet the criteria, the major depressive episode would be five out of the nine that lasts two weeks. It causes significant distress. In addition, it's not caused by another physiological condition or being under the influence of like intoxicants or illicit substances. Oh, so you also need to be sober to understand if you're really depressed or not. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's important. Yeah. So then in terms of the depression, we can have the, the episode that meets the criteria for two weeks. Some people have only one episode ever. So then they may come in and address how they were feeling. And we would discuss different tools and strategies, maybe if the mood comes back and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so there's the major depressive episode where we have a single episode, and then we can also have recurrent episodes. Okay. And each episode can be mild, moderate, or severe in mm -hmm. terms of severity. They can come with or without psychotic features. And sometimes it's very vague and maybe unspecified. So then we would modify the depressive episode as unspecified. So mm -hmm. here we have the range of depression in terms of severity. Um, length of time. So what we're talking about now, Sarah, is major depressive disorder. And mm -hmm. also what used to be called uh, dysthymia, which is now persistent dis depressive disorder. And for persistent depressive disorder, you have to have symptoms for two years. Oh, okay. So the way that I describe persistent depressive disorder is the person feels like the forecast is mostly cloudy mm -hmm. every day, mm -hmm. two years. So they can, they know the sun can shine, but in their world, it's mostly cloudy every day. Right. Also have major depressive episodes within persistent depressive disorder. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. And then, but, but if you're not thinking it's cloudy every day and you have a depressive episode, it doesn't mean you're depressed necessarily. Correct. Okay. So, and then again, you know, it's to basically that we have some level of impairment. So we don't want to go to work. We're not socializing or going to yoga class like we normally do. Right, so it takes us deeper in, into the, the emotion than sadness. Sadness, we can, you know, many of us will say, oh, I didn't go to class because I didn't feel like it, mm -hmm. right? And most of us, even if we didn't feel like it, we're gonna push through and do what we need to do. Mm -hmm. And I think with depression, despite our best effort to push through, it feels impossible. Mm. Yeah, and that's where the helplessness comes in, right? Exactly, and the hopelessness. Yeah. You mentioned moods that are tied to something else that's going on 
physiologically in the body? Does this mean like if you have a disease or something like that? Exactly. So let's say there's depression and we have to rule out what may be the etiology or the cause. Mm-hmm. So certainly certain substances while we're under the influence or withdrawal can mimic symptoms of depression where we're tired or confused or having trouble making decisions or having trouble sleeping if we're used to taking a substance and now we're without it. Alcohol is also um, a depressant. So even though after a couple of beers or glasses of champagne, we might feel elevated and happy, overall, alcohol will depress the whole central nervous system. Mm-hmm. I have one client that came up with the term boozy blues. So she says it's not a hangover because she knows a hangover. This is more about her mood and she feels heavy and down and where the forecast is cloudy. So she has to be intentional about her alcohol consumption because it invites that mood. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people I think are trying to get away from that mood and that's why they drink. And then it's just exactly. a vicious cycle, right? Right. So I'm like, so do you want to really drink liquid depression when you're depressed? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So your job is basically to weed out all these other possibilities. Right. So in addition to the substances, Sarah, there's hormonal. Mm -hmm. Right. So things like PMS, premenstrual um, syndrome. And now they've come up with another one for us gals is... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> isn't that nice of them <laughs> very nice so sweet it's premenstrual dysphoric disorder oh what's this so that is um in the majority of menstrual cycles at least five symptoms must be present in the final week before onset of menses start to improve with a few days after the onset of menses and become minimal or absent in the week post menses one or more of the following symptoms must be present. Marked affective lability, that means mood swings, suddenly sad or tearful, increased sensitivity to rejection. Uh, two, marked irritability or anger, or increased interpersonal conflicts. Three, marked depressed mood, feelings of hopelessness, or self-deprecating thoughts. Four would be marked anxiety, tension, and or feelings of being keyed up or on edge. And we gals only have to have one of the four to start to meet the diagnostic criteria for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. In addition to one of the four in terms of affecting our mood, we have to have one of the following seven. So that would be a decreased interest in usual activities. And if you note, that was also one of the symptoms for major depressive disorder. There's difficulty in concentration, lethargy, easy fatigability, or marked lack of energy, which also mirrors depressive symptoms, marked change in appetite, overeating, specific food cravings, hypersomnia, insomnia, a sense of being overwhelmed or out of control, and physical symptoms such as breast tenderness or swelling, joint or muscle pain, a sensation of bloating or weight gain. So many females that come into my office might be just feeling out of sorts and not themselves. Mm -hmm. So I will tend to um, go through different checklists informally in terms of when the mood disturbance, when did they notice it? Is it the first time or does it seem to happen recurrently? And surprising enough, even though our hormones will be affected every single month, we forget about that. Yes. And we're cranky and irritated and sensitive. And we and- don't know why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, and it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about this because, you know, it's interesting. You have these symptoms and you don't even realize that that was the cause, that the PMS was the cause until well after your period is over. Exactly. And and you're thinking clearly again. Right. And so I 
see my clients typically once a week or once every other week. So I'm observing and assessing objectively their mood, their sensitivity level. And often, Sarah, every four weeks, we have the same yeah. <laughs> presentation. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and it's great that it's well, it's great that you are there to be able to witness this. Because I mean, and especially like, you know, I'm I'm sure people have like husbands, you know, like, <laughs> or you know, a partner of some kind. Um, they might remind them, but but you know, if you're alone and your friends are not calling you out, you might not know and, and you're just confused and you just don't understand why. You're feeling like this, and then you start to go down this path of like, well, maybe I, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm depressed. Blah, blah, blah. And it's really just no, it's just that time of the month, right? So we, you know, and and we take such offense when our, you know, roommate or partner, or boyfriend or husband or uh, sure, yeah. Are, are you are you PMSing? Is it that time of the month? And like, no. <laughs> Yeah, but but they're they're right on target, right? And and they're really just trying to, in a way, be helpful because right. they're trying to make you see that it, this is not you. It's okay. Like you're gonna be okay. This is just this thing. You gotta get right. It. We're very agitated and fussy, and so you know. And it's when we're going through it, we are blind to it, yeah. and you know we be, can become very irrational and. Oftentimes, our lens is distorted and negative, and then it alleviates. <laughs> yeah. So how can we prep ourselves, or how can we minimize these symptoms? Or is it just kind of like this part of life that we just need to just know that it's going to come up and deal with? Yeah, so it definitely helps, Sarah, for us to each know our body, right? What makes it tick, what you know, whether it's gluten sensitivity or our hormones going through, you know, an upheaval. Mm-hmm. So those are some things that definitely will affect our mood, but there's also like our blood sugar, our thyroid, you know, if we're deficient in certain nutrients that can affect our mood. So sometimes folks will come into my office after they have had a battery of tests, blood tests, MRIs, CAT scans, because they're convinced that there's something physically affecting them. Hmm. And when the tests come out negative, oftentimes their PCP or their provider would recommend coming to talk to somebody like me to suss out what is feeding their belief that something is wrong with them. And also because if, if that mood perpetuates and they don't treat it, then it might turn in, it might manifest into a disease eventually. Definitely. Yeah, because there's the whole mind-body connection. So, you know, many times you might say, oh, I have, you know, I'm nervous in my gut or my back aches or I have a headache. And oftentimes that can be tied to our emotional and psychological self that manifests as bodily pain. Mm Right. Mm-hmm. So if a person is comes to me depressed and, you know, we try certain strategies, I am a psychologist. So I'm a talking doctor. I don't prescribe medication. So all of my strategies to help alleviate the symptoms would be natural. Mm-hmm. So if the symptoms aren't alleviating, oftentimes we may explore having different tests run. A couple of the, my clients recently had thyroid imbalances that were affecting their mood. Hmm. And that required you know, them going to an endocrinologist to have their levels measured. Mm-hmm. And then that helps us in terms of treating the depression, right? And balancing hmm. thyroid. There's hmm. also um, things, there's a diagnosis called adjustment disorder. And adjustment disorder can be with depressed mood, with anxiety, with mixed depressed mood and anxiety. And adjustment disorder speaks to something situational or circumstantial 
that might have occurred that affects our mood. So it could be something like not getting a promotion or breaking up a relationship. It also can include grieving and mourning after the loss of somebody. Mm -hmm. And that the grief can certainly manifest into depression. So again, that's measured primarily by time. Okay. So this would not just be a a depressive episode. It would be something that started with an episode, but then eventually over time developed into clinical depression? Correct. Okay. Because when you think about, you know, like if you if we lost somebody or break up, we're definitely sad and heartbroken. And, you know, there are going to be moments of darkness. But yet, if we talk about the person who has passed, we might laugh or remember a funny story about them that would sort of indicate not depression. Because with depression, it's hard for us to feel joy and to laugh and to engage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would think diagnosing someone as depressed would be a sensitive topic, like something that you'd have to be really careful about since many times treatment can involve taking prescription medications if they choose to go that route. Is this conversation one that you usually wait for your clients to bring up? Or have there been times when you're crystal clear that that depression is what's going on with the patient and you feel like you're just compelled to tell them and recommend treatment? Uh, that's, that's really good. I think, Sarah, most of the folks that come see me, it is their choice. So they're not feeling either themselves or out of sorts or like I um, like to say, frumpy, lumpy, and dumpy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Or, you know, they're sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. Yeah, yeah. And so usually there is something that would compel them to make an appointment and come in. And so we would be talking about what their experience is. And sometimes it's very directly their affect or their mood or their emotional state. And other times they might say they can't sleep or they've gained weight, or they don't have an appetite, or they used to be, you know, very dedicated to hula or surfing, and now they're seeing themselves as not really engaged. So they're not feeling themselves, typically. I do a lot of women's issues. So my referral source has been um, OBGYNs, And they are, I have to say, very astute in diagnosing any type of mood juju in their patients. Hmm. And many will send them into um, therapy if they're expecting and pregnant Mm -hmm. so they can assess their mood stability. And sometimes I stay with them through the birth of the baby and then postpartum. so talk about that because there's postpartum depression and anxiety, which is also very real. And that comes, um, as, it's, as it says, at following the birth of a child. And there is a huge hormonal surge that comes with that. And then also I say a new job, which is having an infant with no manual. So it's very, very stressful and definitely affects our mood and the sleep deprivation and the hormonal imbalance really, really can do a number on us. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I've never had children. I'm never going to have children. And that to me, I mean, it's just one of the several reasons why. <laughs> but I mean, I, I really want to highlight that because that is a lot for somebody to go through in a relatively short amount of time. And that's a traumatic experience. Yes. And so, you know, I have new mothers in my office oftentimes within a week of giving birth because their OBGYN has assessed. And there is a measure that the physicians will give new mothers in terms of their mood and their outlook and their level of hopelessness Mm -hmm. and them support immediately 
which is key in um, them getting through the postpartum depression pretty efficiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is it just kind of, I mean, do you have to specialize in that? I mean, are they going to send women who are experiencing that to a certain type of psychologist or is it still the same framework where you're just kind of going through different scenarios and seeing what strategies would work? That's a really good question. And now because the with the peripartum postpartum onset of depression, it is under the umbrella of, of a major depressive disorder. So technically a psychologist could treat it as they would treat depression, mm-hmm. right? But hopefully they are sensitive or knowledgeable about different hormonal imbalances and upheavals with their, certain cycles of a woman's life. And then there's also, Sarah, the type of depression that comes with the lack of exposure to sunlight. Ah, okay. And that used to be called seasonal affective disorder, but now it is major depressive disorder with a seasonal pattern. So the seasonal affective disorder comes with the lack of sunlight or diminished sunlight. And we get vitamin D from the sun and vitamin D metabolizes serotonin, which is a brain chemical, a very important neurotransmitter that helps to elevate our mood. So with prolonged cloudiness or lack of sunlight, many people's mood is affected um, and they become depressed. So for example, several years ago in Hawaii, it rained for 40 days. So we were all cracking up, you know, that Noah was going to come with his ark and (laughs) but it was very real and people became depressed. Hmm. Also in um, students that have been born and raised in Hawaii and then leave for college and go to the Pacific Northwest or the East Coast often come home during Christmas break and their mood is very down. Thankfully, the remedy is exposure to sunlight. And when they go back to Washington State or Boston, um, I recommend a happy light in their dorm room or in their nightlight that mimics sunlight. Hmm. And that would be the remedy for the seasonal onset. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I often have thought of depression as a chemical imbalance. So this makes perfect sense. And, but I, I also, and I don't know if this is also true or if it's a myth or I thought it was something that was oftentimes genetic or you were sort of born predisposed this way, not necessarily something that developed or was just temporary. Is is that the case sometimes where it's just like a person's just born like that and they're just like that their whole lives? Or does is it does it come on at some point? Yeah, so actually, uh, yes to all of the above. So we can definitely have a genetic loading. So just like the color of our eyes and our body type, we're going to basically, that's going to be influenced by our parents. And so if there is depression or anxiety, typically there would be a genetic loading. But in saying that, um, these parents, one with depression and one with anxiety, might have five children, but not all five children would have the gene, the predisposition activated per se. And that speaks to their temperament, their resilience, their social support, introversion, extroversion. And so definitely there is a genetic loading for that. Um, There are also situational things that can create those feelings, you know, that we touched on like a breakup or not getting a promotion. As a psychologist, my remedies for a depressed mood are first of all in assessing that it is actually depression. And then depending on what is hindering the client, let's say insomnia, we would then look at ways of helping them get deep REM sleep, which our body needs to heal. And that's 
that's the time that it stops producing cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And many of us might sleep, but we don't get deep wave sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you're just like a light sleeper, they call it, right? In quotes. Exactly. And so in terms of tools or strategies to help beat depression, and I describe depression as very slippery, and it tricks us, and it makes us believe that we're, we can't put our shoes on and go for a walk. It makes us believe that we don't want to participate or go surfing or golfing like we used to. And so part of it is pushing through it. If we can get our body in motion and whether it's taking the stairs instead of the elevator. I also joke that parking at Macy's and walking to Nordstrom and back counts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Exercise and getting the body in motion. If we're able to move our body and listen to music that's kind of upbeat, we get a double whammy effect. The exposure to sunshine gives us a good dose of vitamin D. Socializing, social support helps us come out of that doom and gloom. So these are basic steps that I encourage people to try on to the best of their ability. What if somebody is very active and they'll go out for the run or they'll go out to the yoga class, but they still believe that they're depressed and they're going out and hanging out with friends and doing all the things. They're not laying on the couch all day, but they still believe that deep down underneath they are. What would you, how would you talk to that person? Well, and actually I had that person, Sarah. So she presented as depressed and through a thorough diag- uh, symptom presentation and assessing the length of time she had the persistent depressive disorder, which has the two-year criteria of feeling basically like crap. Mm-hmm. And I'm the psychologist, and she had an intentional choice in choosing me because she did not want to uh, pursue medication. Mm-hmm. So in feeling, and she came in feeling sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And so through that, we identify that she has this persistent depressive disorder, and that's why she feels that way. And she is very compliant. She's very motivated. We get going immediately. She, she starts to train for the marathon, and that was her commitment to get her body in motion. So she is starting to run and build up her endurance and stamina, and she actually runs the marathon. However, the depression still there. Mm-hmm. And as she's training for the marathon, we're also exploring things that she once found pleasure in, and it was art and painting. So she got a canvas, an easel, and carved out an area where she fought, felt she could be inspired. And she was very, very committed to the process. And yet the depression is not lifting. So she concedes and is open to exploring medication. So I, I refer to a psychiatrist and he prescribes her uh, antidepressant and it seems to be helping. Not as much as we had hoped, but it seems to be helping. However, the side effect of weight gain overrode the benefit for the client. Oh man, so now she's depressed about gaining weight. Right. And this is at the same time when the new research um, about meditation and creating new neural pathways and how it lights up our brain in ways that it didn't before we started meditating. And so I'm doing the homework and reading the literature And um, Jennifer Reuter, who we all know, is simultaneously completing her course of study to be a meditation teacher. So I present this situation to Jennifer and to my client, and they pursued the information and connected. And through a practice of meditation, Sarah, the depression, the depression has lifted. Oh, oh my God. 
amazing. And for me, if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I'm too skeptical. I would not believe it. That's amazing. And Isn't it? Yeah. And um, I mean, you know, we're all fans of meditation here on, on this, yes. you know, a lot of our listeners and uh, right. everybody at Yoga Unplugged, but I think this is really, really huge because not even medication could right. cure her. Right. And I mean, they're still using things like electroconvulsive therapy. So, you know, it's not just like in one flew over the cuckoo's nest in terms of sedating you and then basically putting electrical currents in your brain to rewire it to help you with depression. Meditation is such a loving, more gentle. Way. Yeah. Yeah. Meditation <laughs> basically does that, but it doesn't like zap all of, exactly. of everything that you've ever learned in your whole life. Like your right. feelings, your, yeah. yeah the primary, the primary side effect is of ECT is short-term memory loss. Is very real, also, right? So yeah, let's, let's explore meditation, people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It seems like the least negative side effects out of right. anything, really. Because right. you're literally just sitting there. I mean, like the most you can get is like maybe a sore back. <laughs> but there are things to do to to even alleviate that. Yeah, I you know, like let's talk about the the medicine for a minute because. You know, I've I've only heard, but I hear that it can even out your mood so much that you don't have strong emotions. So maybe you don't feel super sad, but you don't necessarily feel super happy ever either. So what do you do when someone resists the, the medicine because the side effects prohibit them from feeling joy? Right. So I think it helps me particularly to work with a very knowledgeable, astute compassionate psychiatrists so that they can determine the appropriate medication and dosing. The, you know, a lot of the antidepressant medication falls into a class called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. So serotonin, which I had touched on um, previously, is a brain chemical neurotransmitter that we create in our body. And when we're depressed or stressed, it's not utilized in the way that benefits us. So the medication sort of directs and channels the serotonin in a way that we can benefit in terms of elevating our mood, helping us experience joy. But there are clients that I have seen where their emotions have been dulled. Mm. So the medication and from where I sit may be too strong or the dose too high. So it basically hinders their ability to feel their feelings. Oh, so this isn't a common side effect. This could be the possibility that somebody is just taking too much, like their dosage is too high. Correct. Uh Ah, And then many times people will say to me, I feel like I can't cry. And so they have difficulty accessing that. So, you know, oftentimes when we are on medication and now they're identifying different side effects, then oftentimes we would take steps to reduce the dose and work with a psychiatrist to titrate them off the medication. And, and typically that's hand in hand with them enhancing natural tools and strategies to stabilize their mood. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they burn when they go off medication, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the goal. You don't want to have to take it your whole life. Right. And so, there are some people that may have to take it for most of their life. But, you know, I'm thinking, Sarah, if we found something that helps us experience joy, thank goodness there's something that helps us experience joy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd rather be taking medicine than be miserable my whole life. Right. If, that's, if that is the solution that I, the best solution I found, better than meditation, better than any, you know, anything else, mm-hmm. then that's the solution. And, and it's okay. I think people need to be okay with that, especially maybe some of the people who are anti-taking pharmaceuticals. You know, they want to keep their bodies clean and right. 
because that could be a big deal for somebody who they go to a naturopath, they don't take anything when they get sick. You know what I mean? They live off of herbs and, you know, those types of treatments. And this could be something that could really help them. But if they've got that mental block, they might live their whole life unhappy because they're just not willing to try. Right. And, you know, I think historically, maybe, you know, like our grandparents, our great grandparents, were not using terms like depression or anxiety. So they might have, you know, used terms like, oh, grandma was was grumpy all the time or grandpa spent a lot of time in his room or in the garage by himself right mm-hmm. so we downplay not... what it actually is exactly and so then you know when we're looking at our mood sometimes we don't even see the connection the genetic loading and the generations before us mm. Oh yeah, like right. grandpa was actually depressed too. I just exactly never knew. Right, right. Mm. Yeah, that's why it's it's so good to be so transparent and open with your kids, right? Let them know where they come from because right. learn a lot about yourself. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah. So I guess what is the if somebody doesn't already see a therapist and they're feeling like, you know, they're listening to the show, maybe they're like, man, I think, I think I'm depressed or, or I at least want to find out. I mean, what do you suggest? Do you think that they just go see a therapist? Like, is there any, anything else that they can do? Well, I think many people would probably talk to their physician, their PCP, mm-hmm. and, you know, just about different ailments and they may run tests and, you know, for like depression and anxiety, Sarah, there's no blood test. There's no x-ray in terms of how to um, determine whether the person has it or not. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when I was going through the symptom presentation, there were like objective. So that's what other people see as well as subjective experiences, right? What you're feeling. And so often they may go to their... Um, their PCP and describe different ailments. And then from that, the PCP can assess that it may be more um, emotional or psychological and not so physical. Mm-hmm. And depression is a symptom. It's not a disease, correct? Uh, well, the disorder would be a mental health disease. Okay. Right. But in, in terms of the disease or meeting the criteria to be diagnosed with that particular disease is pretty straightforward and thorough, right? So Mm -hmm. we can have the down mood, but we may not have the insomnia or the hypersomnia or meet the diagnostic criteria for the diagnosis of depression, Mm -hmm. right? So then would anxiety be a symptom of depression? We can often have, they, they often will go hand in hand, but they are actually two separate diagnoses. Mm. So like, for example, they have the, um, I mentioned the adjustment disorder. So that's something circumstantial or situational that would come with symptoms of depression, which is the, you know, affecting your mood and it may have anxiety. So that might be you know, if you're applying to college, you're anxious and worried and your mood is affected because you're not confident of being accepted. And so we can have all different types of feelings inside ourselves that would be a mixture of um, depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been really helpful. I, is there any other advice you would like to give on this topic that you think that we haven't covered yet? Well, I think definitely if you're depressed or you are feeling any of the feelings that we touched on, please talk to somebody. Yeah. Have to suffer. That's the most important part, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, even just talking to a friend can help us feel better because we're connecting and, you know, our, we have those friends because they're empathic and compassionate. And if we don't have friends, then we can hopefully call somebody. There are, you know, in Hawaii, there's the crisis line, which is man 24-7. And 
they send people to help and talk to us and calm us down if we need it in a crisis. Mm -hmm. Would that number be helpful? Um, yeah. Okay, so for the crisis team in Hawaii, it's 808-832-3100. And this is like, give me an example of a crisis. Is this like, I'm, I'm going to commit suicide right now? Like that kind of a crisis? Or can it be other things less severe than that? Yeah, so definitely in that type of crisis where we're thinking about hurting ourselves or other people. But it can also be, you know, I have... Many of the people that I'm working with, I give them the crisis number in case, let's say, you know, it's in the evening or the weekend when I'm not available, if they are feeling overwhelmed or they have a wave of sadness or oftentimes folks might have an anxiety attack or what they call a panic attack where there's an there's a intense feeling um, that's overwhelming. Some people feel like they can't breathe. So those would be times to call the crisis worker and they give us resources. Oftentimes they would come in person to help us through whatever the crisis is. Wow. And that's for free? Yes. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. And if they need a higher level of care, then they definitely will help to connect people with those resources. Hmm. That's great. Are you currently taking on new clients? And if so, how can people find you? They can find me. Um, my email address is drkiss at hawaii.rr.com. So that's D-R-K-I-S-S at hawaii.rr.com. My phone number is area code 808-944-6900, extension 1. Awesome. Thank you so much, Susie. I really appreciate you coming on this show. I know this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah, and keep up the amazing job that you're doing. Now, I'd love to hear from all you listeners out there, so please let me know what you thought of the show and if you have any topics or questions that you'd like me to tackle on the show. The team of Yoga Unplugged and I are here for you, so please let us know. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation with us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at yogaunplugged.org. Find us on Facebook at Yoga Unplugged by Jennifer Reuter. Reuter is spelled R-E-U-T-E-R. -E or connect with us on Instagram at yoga underscore unplugged. Thanks for listening, everyone. Namaste.